Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the disciple, the other disciple, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the disciple, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in, in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was him, that was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking it was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Oh, thank you so much, Dave. Everyone, you can grab a seat. What a beautiful thing. I am always so over-enthusiastic when I look out and see your faces. And then I'm also frustrated after the service because I wanted to talk to you. Yeah, I'm talking about you. You specifically. It's Easter. We just heard an account that is so... Gorgeous! It's this picture of Jesus emerging, looking like a gardener in this sort of garden scene. And Mary Magdalene seeing him and saying, they've taken the Lord. Where is he? And he says, it's me. And she cries out, Rabboni, like I recognize you. I see you. It's a beautiful story. Easter is a beautiful thing. Have you ever had something amazing get a really rough start. Any of you have that? Something really tremendous, have just a bad start. I'm going into this. June will be 15 years of marriage with my beautiful wife, Bray. 15 years. You can clap for that. You can clap for that. 15 years. So when I picked her up for our first date, we dated for like four years before that. So when I picked her up for our first date, I was a young, young, young man, and um, I'm walking up the driveway. I had our 1996 Toyota Camry, freshly washed, waxed it. It was looking beautiful. I was wearing like a gallon of Old Spice cologne. I was smelling tremendous, wearing some thick corduroys, ready for this date. And I'm going up the driveway 
to her house. She was living, of course, with her parents at the time. And I go up the driveway, and there's a garage to the left to get to their their main door. And I hear a voice out of that garage say, Hey, James. I look over, and it's her father, Jim. Jim's here today, by the way. Jim, would you just wave for us? Come on. Yeah, he's right back there. Jim, let me just tell you about this guy. First of all, you know, L.A. County Sheriff for many years. Looks like Sylvester Stallone. Each finger on his hand could crush my trachea. Like, this is just who this guy is. And he says, James, step into my office. And I'm like, I don't see an office. I see a garage. And I don't see an exit anywhere uh, visible. And so I step in, and he's wearing this big sweatshirt. He goes, James, I'm so glad you're taking my daughter out for a date. This is wonderful. He goes, have you ever heard that Bible verse, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, or have Bray's dad cut it off for you? And I'm like, I've heard the verse. It didn't go like that, but I I remember the verse. Then he takes off his sweatshirt, and he has a 9 millimeter strapped on to his chest and he pulls it out and he takes the clip out and puts it on the dryer so there's a loud clanking sound of metal and death just right there and he goes yeah there's another there's another saying have you ever heard the saying you have a bullet with your name on it and i'm thinking that's a gun those are bullets then he reaches back and he pulls out a revolver like this is a real revolver and he pulls a bullet out which was in the revolver, hollow tip, by the way, and he had etched my name into the bullet, and he hands it to me and goes, you go ahead and hold on to that one. Yeah, I thought at the time this guy might be a little bit crazy. Now that I have a daughter who's nine going on 19, I'm pretty sure he's a genius. The man is a genius right there. Great marriage, great date, rough start. If you think about the story of Easter. I mean, what a tremendous story. Could there be a better story? When you stop and think about it, it truly gets off to a very, very difficult start, a troubling start. Let's just think about it. It starts off with a story of Jesus, probably the, probably, definitely the greatest human ever to walk the earth. Someone who spent their entire life caring and healing, touching the untouchable, speaking to those on the margin, loving the unlovable, did nothing but care and love. I mean, an amazing, amazing person. Then, towards the end of his life, he's betrayed. He's betrayed into the hands of some messed up enemies. He's betrayed by his be- one of his best friends. And he identifies Jesus to this crowd of folks coming to get Jesus by kissing him. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Someone that he had spent at least three years of his life in tears and hopes and moments. And he's betrayed with a kiss. And then in his moment of deep need of physical, political, social crisis, everyone abandons him. We all know the famous story of Peter denying Jesus three times. Once to what may have been a 12-year-old slave girl. Saying, I don't even know this guy. There's this tragic picture. One of the saddest passages in the entire Bible. Mark 14, 50-52. It says this. 
Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. It's this weird detail in Mark that just underlines and highlights and emphasizes the haste at which everyone wanted to get as far away from Jesus as possible. I've been through hard things. I have been through really hard things. I know you have. And there is nothing more painful than feeling alone. And Jesus was alone. And then he's mocked. He's captured. He's mocked. He's spit on. He's beaten. And he's given the death of nightmares. In the ancient Mediterranean world, I've preached on this before. I did a Christmas sermon on this one time. That was a weird one about the cross. He's killed publicly naked, socially killed before he's physically killed. I mean, it's a bad start. It's a terrible story. Take it one level, one level out, theologically speaking, One of the crazy, audacious, beautiful truths that Christians hold to is that God, the Creator, took on flesh and dwelt with us. God came downstairs and was with us, dwelt with humanity in real time, space, spent time with us. So He comes to us, and what do we do? Humanity. We kill Him. Like, could there be a darker thing? A worse thing that humans have ever done? Theodicide. So, if there is anything that seems irredeemable, like, you can't come back from this one. This is a dark story. This is a terrible thing. This is the irredeemable. And yet, from this awful beginning, tragic set of circumstances, what was intended for destruction hate, darkness, God takes the momentum of all that evil and slingshots it into the most amazing story, the most amazing thing that has ever happened in the resurrection. On the cross, what was intended to destroy someone who was beautiful, God took the sins of humanity and definitively dealt with them. Jesus on the cross became like a black hole, sucking in all of the centuries and millennia of injustice, oppression, violence, hatred, lying, fear, corruption, death, disease, takes it on himself. It goes in and it doesn't come out. deals with the absolute greatest problem that humans have ever had, that this earth has ever had. This dark, terrible night, terrible day, God takes it and makes the most beautiful thing. And then the resurrection. This isn't just an arbitrary miracle of God. Like, hey, what could we do to help people pay attention more to being nice to their neighbors? Let's take a bush and turn it into cotton candy. No, that's not good enough. What can we do? What can we do? Hey, how about we have Jesus come back to life? That'll that'll really get him. That is not what the resurrection is. The resurrection is this sign. It is this act. 
It is the first act of renewal off the factory line of God's business. God's primary business. The thing that God does is take that which is broken, that which is dark, that which is feared, that which is corrupting, and he brings life. And he brings beauty. And he brings hope. He takes the worst things and makes the best things. That is God's business. The resurrection is like a banner declaring that death thou shalt die. As John Donne, 16th, 17th century poet once said, death thou shalt die. The worst things come the best things. Now, if you've spent any time in the scriptures or around church or in Sunday school and you've heard stories that are in the Bible, you realize this isn't some new thing God just started. This is what God has always been doing. This is kind of God's favorite thing. He takes that which is ignored, forgotten, tossed aside, that which the world, me, you, look at and say, oof, hold your nose. This is too gross. He loves to take that and make something beautiful out of it. I mean, think about it. He chooses Israel, a people, a nation of slaves for 400 years, and says, I want this people to be the curators of my story. I want to take this people and parade them out to the world to hear who I am and that I have not left this world to destruction, but insist on renewing all things. Think about one of their greatest kings, David, the runt of the litter, the least likely candidate to be the king of the house of Israel. And God's like, yeah, that's the one I want. That little guy right there. Yeah, him. And then David gets into power and totally screws up his life. He commits adultery. He betrays one of his dear friends. He commits murder. All this stuff. And you would think, irredeemable. There's no coming back for this. And yet if you read the Psalms, these hymns and poems in the middle of our Bible, some of the greatest expressions of love, of pain, of worship to God come from the pen and the mouth and the harp of that man. God loves to choose that which we would pick last in dodgeball and say, no, that's, that's my number one draft pick. I love taking broken things and making them whole. I love taking that which is dark and bringing life. I love taking the embarrassing thing, the shameful thing, and turning it in with my love and my grace into a majestic portrait. This is what God does. And he continues. Think about Paul of Tarsus, one of the most important missionaries in early Christianity. He was also, prior to his calling by Jesus, one of the first participants and most important participants in mob violence that killed Stephen, one of the first Christian martyrs. Paul of Tarsus. God says, now I want to use him to show my glory. That which is broken and corrupted and rotting and rusted, and I'm going to showcase it. Because that's my business. That's what I do. I am the God who resurrects. I love doing that. You could hear stories throughout church history. Peter denying Jesus three times, and on Pentecost, 
in Acts chapter 2, he is the most bold, courageous, powerful voice saying, no, this Jesus is alive. I will deny him no longer because he has taken what should have been a disgraced disciple who gets to sit the bench, maybe get a pension afterwards if he's lucky, and walk through till he dies in shame. God takes that person and says, nope, you're not sitting the bench, Peter. I want you to be my mouthpiece. Why? Because I want the world to hear that I love taking broken stuff and making beautiful things. Don't give me the pristine, fresh off the lot Maserati. I want that 94 Toyota Tracel, 250,000 miles on it. Give it to me and I'm going to make something beautiful. I drove a Tracel, by the way, for many years. I could go through story after story in church history. I could tell story after story in this little church of ours. We heard one from Todd. Why are we such a weird people? Why do we have a bright-eyed optimism? We feel pain. We sit and process that pain. Even this morning, I was huddling in prayer with people going, I don't feel it today. I don't know. There's some hard stuff going on. We circle up. We don't brush off, smile, take your Jesus Prozac and feel better. That's not how we roll. But we have a deep, profound, lasting optimism. It's called hope. It's because even if we don't know what God is up to in our lives, we know the God we serve, so we know that thing that we're scared of, that thing that wakes us up at four in the morning, that relationship that seems severed beyond repair, that prognosis, diagnosis, those symptoms, we know that God is going to do something with them because God doesn't waste an ounce of our pain because it's His business. It's what He does. It's what He's always done. And it's what we celebrate at Easter. The God who takes that which is broken, that which is embarrassing, that which is meant for destruction and brings about life and beauty. One of the last pictures of the resurrected Jesus that we hear in the New Testament. This is in Revelation 21. It's one of the last statements in our scriptures. Jesus is depicted saying, this is said of him, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then this passage has a quote from Jesus. He who is seated on the throne said, and listen to the words of Jesus this morning, whether you have been following him like I was born on a Tuesday in church on Sunday, or you're someone put you in a headlock here and said, just sit through it and I'll buy you a breakfast burrito. Whoever you are, I want you to hear this line. Jesus says, behold, I am making everything new. Behold, I am making everything new. This Easter 2019, I want to let that truth off the leash and let it run around in our community. Let it run around in your life. For all of us, it means, if you're like me, I'm a historian, I think big picture history, 
it means that the destruction that began in the garden, where man balls up their fists at God and says, I'll do it my way. I don't really need all of your, your truths. I'll figure some things out. And from there, death, corruption, separation of God and man. That piece that we can take a world civilizations class and see how slavery and oppression and war and death and fear have plagued us. The truth of the resurrection tells us that God has not abandoned us to ourselves. That even this, He is making new. The truth, for those of you looking over the fence at this whole Christianity thing, next week we're doing a a sermon called what a Christian isn't. Okay, so I'm going to just give three things about what Christians aren't. But for some of you looking over the fence at a... And that's why God invented backup microphones on the sixth day. You might think, looking over the fence at Christianity, how does this apply to me? What does this mean for me? Here's one thing I just want to make clear. You do not need to clean up your act to come and follow Jesus. It has risen. That's kind of blasphemous. You don't need to clean up your act. You don't need to smell better, look better, comb out your hair. Give it a week, sober up, find Jesus. Maybe sober up before you make a decision. Maybe not. The point is, God wants you. He wants your past. He wants the wreckage you've created. He wants the doubts that you harbor. He wants those deep, hard questions that you're asking. He wants the memories that you think will never be dislodged. He wants to take all of those. He wants the Christian people that have hurt you, that have made you feel small and dirty and impure. He wants all those memories, all that stuff. He wants to take it and say, give it to me. I will make something new. And that is why he died on that cross. It is because he doesn't want you to smell better and be a good little boy or a good little girl. It's sad and heartbreaking that sometimes people like me have made you think that's what he wants. He doesn't want good little boys and good little girls. He wants children in his family and he wants you as you are. And he will do the renewal. So so I want to invite anyone here today If you want to step into that, you want to say, yes, Lord, I don't know what all this means, but what I'm hearing is you cared, you came, you took the, what Paul would call scubala in Greek, different word in English. You took all the crap that we have created and you've been punished in our place. So I'm hearing this Lord and I'm saying yes to you and I'm a, walk with you. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to struggle a bit maybe, but I need freedom. I need hope. So I am embracing you. So some of you today, that's something maybe you talk with someone you came with, hang back, talk to one of the great people here at the river church and say yes to Jesus. Some of you, and this is the last thing I want to say, this is more for like me and all of you folks that have been following Jesus a little bit. We can get a mentality that says, well, yeah, I'm good 
in the big picture. God has taken the wreckage of my life and forgiven me ultimately. So that's nice. But this thing in my life, this diagnosis, this fear, this broken relationship, this part of my marriage, this part of my brain, it's not coming back. It's kind of too far gone. We'll wait for heaven. Lord Jesus, come. What I want to tell you is God wants that peace, that broken thing. He wants you to give it to him and let him do what God does. It's his business. It's his craft. It's his trade. And it's his favorite hobby is taking broken things in your life and making things new. So I want to say, I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. And it's many things. Christian person, open it up, trust him with it, and behold, as he makes all things new. And that might be, as I close right now, that might be as simple as, well, I'm in pain. I'm confused. I'm scared. I'm hurt. And I don't see how possibly this could come out okay. But I know the God I serve. And I know that his business is taking broken things and making them new and beautiful and majestic. And so I entrust myself to that person and I can have this bright, powerful, beautiful hope that through what you heard about in Todd today, what you'll hear about if you spend 10 minutes over coffee with some folks in this church. You'll hear this is the God we serve and this is why we're captivated on Easter. So when we say He is risen, what we mean is He's making all things new. And it started that Easter morning so many thousands of years ago. So let's worship. Let's raise a joyful noise this morning. God bless you. Amen. Why don't we stand together as we praise our God and sing this last song all together. Jesus paid it all.